Okay, where was I? Now that we got the technical details out of the way. What we see in this section is two young men, two sons of Abraham, mentioned in the first half and the second half of this chapter, Isaac and Ishmael. And to both of those, God promises something. He's going to make of both sons of Abraham great nations. And what we really see is in this, in this account, the many years since God made the promise of a son to, Ab to Abram and Sarai is that God keeps his promises and God carries out his plan. And God is in sovereign control over the nations. We know he sets them up, he takes them down. And that's an encouragement to you and I. Because we know a God who can keep his promises. We know a guy who will carry, God who will carry out his plan, who will bring his plan to fruition someday in the future, which is good news for us because we look forward to, if you're a Christian here this morning who have trusted Christ as your Savior, we look to, to forward to that glorious future which God has promised. To bring this sinful world to an end and to take us to eternal glory is, a, is all in the plan and promises of God. And he is carrying out that plan, and we see that in this account this morning. Let's go ahead and pick it up here with verse 8 and, and read just a few verses. So the child grew, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah, the son of Hagar, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing to, in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. We see here at the beginning of this section, we, what in essence, is what is really competition over heirship. Here, when Ishmael was mocking, some versions say scoffing, some versions say laughing. Galatians 4 translates this as persecution towards Isaac. And what was behind the scenes in this event was who was going to be the rightful heir, the oldest son of Abraham, Ishmael, or the, or the promised son of to, given to Abraham in Isaac. And apparently when Sarah observed Ishmael's behavior, it came to her mind that, that uh, Ishmael had a claim to be heir. And she said, that's just not going to happen, didn't, didn't she? And we see this competition. It's really something that's unfortunately common today. When you know, families fight over family stuff. When parents are gone and sometimes even before. Money, property, possessions. With believers, it should not be that way, should it? Because God inspires in us a love for others and others' first mentality a genuine desire for peace, not a peace that simply means an avoidance of conflict and, and therefore offering capitulation, but one of genuine loving preference towards one another. And that should be the characteristics of Christians, but that is not what was going on in this home. You know, in reality, it's only stuff, isn't it? Temporal stuff, stuff that has no bearing on eternity, and yet we find in Abraham's home that competition. And Sarah said, Ishmael must go because her son was going to be the heir. That's, and she put her foot down. That's her story, and she's sticking to it. Now, we don't know her motivation. The Bible doesn't tell us. Was it a motherly, protective motivation, a selfish motivation, or was it an awareness of the promise of God? And maybe someday when we 
meet Sarah in glory? We can ask her that question. But, the, but, but what we do see here is that God affirms that decision, doesn't he? In verse 12, he says, listen to your wife. And I know, men, you don't always like to hear that stated, but that's what he says. She says she's right, maybe, maybe whether rightly or wrongly motivated, God tells her, um, whatever said to you, listen to her voice, because in Isaac your seed shall be called. And God affirmed Sarah's request because of his plan that through Isaac, God would carry on the seed promise given to Abraham. And we know the seed promise started way back in the garden with Adam and Eve when God promised Eve a seed who would destroy Satan. Promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 a seed that would bless the whole world. And Galatians tells us that seed was Jesus Christ. And so what's really at stake in this domestic conflict is God's eternal plan. A plan for a redeemer. A plan for the one, Jesus Christ, who would come and provide salvation for the whole world. A, God, a plan that God had from the garden to the birth of Christ was at stake here. And therefore, the casting out was necessary to preserve that promise and that plan. And we see those things in Scripture, not only in the, in the seed that Jesus Christ needed to be of the seed of Abraham, the promise that was repeated to Abraham's descendants, but we also see that same connection to David, don't we? In 2 Samuel ch chapter 7, God promises David an eternal heir to his throne, which, which Psalm 89 reminds us it is going to be forever and ever. And that's why the genealogies we find in the New Testament are so important because they tie Jesus back to both Abraham and David, the rightful heir, the rightful fulfillment of those promises. But we know Satan would ever destroy God's plans. And that's really was a, what was going on here. Satan was out to thwart the plan of God in order to win the victory in his, in his conflict with the Almighty. He would thwart God's plan for restoration and rescue. And he does it many ways. In fact, Galatians reminds us that this competition that was going on in the house, this persecution, as Galatians 4 calls it, continues even till now. Paul said, which meant in his day, the, the persecution of the Jews, that conflict between the sons of Ishmael and the Jews was going on in Paul's day, and yet it is going on yet here today. And if nothing else, if someone wants a, 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 a proof or an indicator of the truthfulness of God's word, you just have to look out to look at what, who, who are the most persecuted people on the face of the earth, and always have been. It's God's chosen people. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, they say today. And that's because Satan is seeking to thwart, once again, God's future plans for Israel. But God, once again, steps in here because he is able to carry out his plan, and he tells Abraham, don't, to, to, don't worry, don't be troubled, because in Isaac your seed will be called. And God, be, God is able to carry out his plan, doesn't he? Even though there was the pain of separation, with Ishmael, God's plan was going to be fulfilled through Isaac. And so we see once again God carrying out his sovereign plan, and that means you and I are in good hands. Now this statement, cast out the bondwoman and her son, we find in the New Testament. There's a New Testament lesson I don't think that we, can, we should avoid this morning. So let's go to Galatians chapter 4, where this event 
is used to illustrate an important New Testament teaching. Galatians chapter 4. And we know what was at stake in the letter to the Galatians was a problem that was common throughout the New Testament church, and that was the, admix the admixture of law and grace. Those who had infiltrated or had uh, assaulted the Galatian church, insisting that new believers keep the Mosaic law. And both here in Galatians, especially in Galatians of the book of Romans, these, this problem is addressed. That salvation is either by law-keeping, by works, or it's by grace. It can't be both, and we know it's by grace through faith. Verse 21, there in Galatians chapter 4, says this, Tell me, who, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? In other words, he, this is written to those who are trying to bring law, law-keeping, the Mosaic law, into the Christian life. But he's going to reach back to the law in general, the first five books of the Bible, and says, listen to what they say. Verse 22, it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, which giveth birth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, ye who do not hear, bear. Bring forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not, are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So the point he makes here is Paul takes the Mosaic law and associates it with Hagar. The Mosaic law represents... Uh, in, a, in, in the New Testament, that approach to God, which is based upon good works, obedience, the best, doing the best we can be. And that, he says, is like Hagar, like, like Ishmael, the one boarding according to the flesh. And that was Abraham and Isaac's plan and how to accomplish God's will. And, it, and Isaac was born to a bondwoman. The other was according to a promise. And the word promise is what God, what Paul often attributes to God's provision of salvation through Christ. Jesus Christ was the result of a promise made to Abraham. A promise that in Abraham would all the nations of the world be blessed. That was fulfilled in Jesus Christ who provides salvation freely, apart from works. And so these two ish, we, we represent the two covenants, the two approaches to salvation, the Mosaic law, which gives birth to bondage, which is the way of works, self-effort, being the best we could, we, we could be, versus the way of salvation by grace freely. Turn with me, if you will, over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Back a few books, Romans chapter 3. When you ask, if you might ask people today, about going to heaven, are they going to heaven, how does a person go to heaven, many will come up with some formula 
of good works, of law-keeping. They may mention the Ten Commandments. That's a common answer, isn't it? Keep the Ten Commandments. Other may, others may offer other religious or moral works that they think is going to appease God and attain them heaven. And that is man's plan. In reality, it brings bondage. And that's what we're told here in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, that's the Ten Commandments, it says to those who are under the law, those who choose to take that approach to God, that every mouth might be stopped and the, all the world might become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, it is man's plan to take the law and make it a means of righteousness, a means of attaining eternal life, a means of appeasing God, just like Ishmael was man's plan to accomplish God's will. And the Bible says here, you got it all wrong. The law, though we see in chapter 7, is holy, righteous, and good. It was never intended as a means to heaven. Instead, the law stops every mouth. It, makes us, it, it declares us guilty. It's like the stop sign or the speed limit sign out on the road that when you violate it, there's a basis for the, lo the law, the legal system, to declare you guilty. You broke the law, and that's what the Ten Commandments did. And when man stands and stacks himself up against the Ten Commandments, we find we, as it says later in this chapter, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're violators because we're sinners by nature. And so this law... This good works, and good works are always good. They just do not accomplish what's what needed to be accomplished in our salvation. They don't provide justification. They don't provide the forgiveness of sins because only the blood of Jesus Christ washes away sins. And so instead, we become guilty, and therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Instead, through law-keeping is the knowledge of sin. You see, in the, in the, in the Bible, God holds up the approach to him Man's approach to him versus God's approach to him is being diametrically opposed. Either it's by faith or it's by grace. Turn over to chapter 11, as long as you're here in the book of Romans. And I hope you're staying with me in this. Romans 11, verse 6, it says, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And if it, be, is, it, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And that's the argument Paul is offering in the book of Galatians. That salvation is either by grace or it's by works. It cannot be both. And that's why back in chapter 4 of this book concerning Abraham, what did Abraham find concerning the flesh? He goes on to say, but to him who works not, but instead believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. You see, Jesus Christ was the son of the free woman. He's the one who was given freely by grace, provided by God. And we know that that's why the New Testament throughout its writings remind us that salvation is not by works as any man should boast. And the reason is, is because good works could never wash away sins. Only the blood of Jesus takes care of the sin debt penalty that must be paid and that was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross. You see, the Mosaic, the Mosaic law brings bondage to guilt with no deliverance. There's no power, there's no life, there's no deliverance in the law. It declares us guilty. We also find as Christians that 
if we, if we seek to appease God, if we seek to live the Christian life in our own strength, that we're weak in the flesh. Romans 8, 3 says, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Instead, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and account of sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And so you have the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant. Hagar represents the Mosaic Covenant. Man's plan, the best man can do, bring, which brings bondage, guilt. Then you have God's plan, the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, which brought to us Jesus Christ who gives salvation freely and frees us from the penalty of sin. It frees us from the power of sin because in Christ we find freedom. In the spirit he has sent we find power. And that's why some of the key verses in Galatians chapter 2, or such as in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's where we find life. That's where we find power to change, power to live. And he goes on to say, In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved, him, loved me and gave himself for me. And so life is found in Christ. In Galatians 5.16 tells us that power is found in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's God's answer for, for salvation and for Christian living. It is in the person of Jesus Christ and in the power of the life-giving Spirit. And so children, we're children of the promise because we find freedom in Christ and power in the Spirit He has sent. And that's where we stand. And therefore, back to Galatians chapter 4, it says, cast out the bondwoman. And what Paul is saying in this application is get rid of law keeping. Cast out that philosophy, that approach, that thinks that you can appease God in the flesh. And I think this not only applies in this book, we find it not only applies to salvation. Do not think you can gain salvation by your works in any, in any way, shape, or form, but also applies to Christian living. Because it's only in him that we, we find deliverance from the bondage of sin in our lives as well. And that's why chapter 5, verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, the liberty by which Christ has made you free. The next verse says, Stand fast in that freedom. Do not mix law with grace when you do what gets you into trouble. In all aspects of the Christian life, in all aspects of salvation. And so we find back in our story in, in, in Genesis 21, of Hagar and Ishmael is, a, is an illustration used here in the New Testament of the importance of doing God's work God's way. And that we find salvation one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. We find Christian living one way. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of our, as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. It is Christ who is central. And that's what he uses this illustration to point us to. The Abrahamic covenant, the promise fulfilled through Isaac, has provided for us deliverance. Deliverance from eternal hell, deliverance from the enslavement of sin in our lives. Be careful to not admix law and grace. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 21. Well, Abraham knew God was right. You don't see Abraham here arguing, but it, but it displeased him. It was painful to him, wasn't it? Because no, no doubt he loved Ishmael. 
his son. It says here, it tells us here in verse 13 that God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to make a great nation of him. And God, God brought comfort to him. Encouraged him. You know, when you look at the situation and realize that Isaac, excuse me, Ishmael was the product of a, of a lapse of faith, of a departure from a dependence upon God and his will. You look at the origins. In our human experience, we'd often look at it and think, well, it serves you right. That's kind of our perspective, isn't it? You shouldn't expect God to, you know, to uh, take care of the son that you, you had out of the will of God. But we know that God's not like that, is it? Because God is a God of forgiveness and restoration. He forgives and restores and he blesses. And God does not withhold his bodily favor because of past, past unfaithfulness. That's an important aspect of grace we must remember. Because we often approach God in our Christian lives thinking that we have to be worthy of the blessing of God in our lives. And while we may reap what we sow as Abraham was here, when God forgives, when we come clean before him, he forgets. His mercies are from everlasting. He, when we repent and confess, he forgives and he cleanses and he puts it behind us, behind you and God. It's settled. It's done. It's, it's behind us. And though there may be lost opportunity, reaping what we've sown to be experienced, God continues to work for our best and his glory. The pain of reaping was to have to send him away. It was, God said, it's the right thing to do. And no doubt painful for Abraham to depart from his son. But the comfort of the Heavenly Father came in that hour of pain and said, I've got him. He says, I'm going to make a great nation of him. And Abraham was comforted to know that God would care for him. God would watch over him. And that's always important, isn't it? To us and our children when they do leave the home. What a great comfort it is to know that they have a Heavenly Father who loves them far more than we do. Has the ability to father them much better than we do. Is sovereign over their lives and he reminds Abraham of that. I've got plans for him. I'll take care of him. Though there's pain and separation, there was comfort of a Heavenly Father knowing that God would watch over his oldest son. Well, it goes on then in verse 14 with the departure. Let's go ahead and read the next few verses. Verse 14, Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it, to, and, he gave it and the boys to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba and the water and the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bullshot, for she had said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. 
So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer, and he dwelt in the wilderness of Haran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now the account of Ishmael, at least following the life of Ishmael, ends here in this chapter, and the Bible continues with the line of Isaac, in whom God seed is to be called, and yet we find here God's care for Hagar and Ishmael, do we not? Hagar wanders in the wilderness, gets lost, and gives up. That's kind of the story. It's a short Cliff Notes version. Her water is gone. She doesn't know where to turn. She's at the breaking point, at the depths of despair. Especially since the, her, hope, her hope for Ishmael to be heir had disintegrated into thin air. And her hope was shattered. Life seemed to be over. The future she had anticipated and planned for was out of her reach. And now she couldn't even provide for her son. And so she sits down and wails, cries, and just waits to die. But once again, God hears. God hears. He heard the voice of the lad. And what's interesting about that in verse 17 is he says he heard the voice of the lad. Now, some of your versions, if you have New American Standard, I might say the crying of the lad, but many of the better versions, most of them use the word voice, which is really the translation of the word. And I find that interesting because Ishmael, who was probably around 15 at this time, he wasn't a young boy. Remember, it had been many years after Ishmael that Abraham and Sarah had waited for a son. He, the most conjecture, he was somewhere in his mid-teen years. And the question before us is, could it be that, was he praying? Because Ishmael was Abraham's son. And there's no doubt in our minds that Abraham would have trained his son concerning Jehovah. The God who had led him to this place and cared for him and watched over him and had great plans. Now he might have been doing both. But while Hagar faithlessly weeps, it seems that Ishmael was praying. He heard his voice. And maybe because the man of God instilled faith in his son Ishmael, that Ishmael knew that in, in situations like this, there's only one place to look. Should be the first place to look, should it not? And maybe Abraham had taught Ishmael that God can be trusted even in the most dire of situations. And so God addresses Hagar, his mom, because he heard the voice of the lad, and he asked her a question. God always knows the answers to the question he asks, does he not? But he asks for our sake, as he did for Hagar's sake. To point out her despair, he says, what ails you, Hagar, fear not. Because that should be the normal status of God's children, to fear not. In other words, stop worrying. Get rid of your anxiety, like the New Testament tells us. Turn it over to the Lord by prayer and supplication instead of being anxious. Just don't fear. You know, and that fear that's mentioned here affects us in so many ways. It doesn't always mean that we're trembling in fear or we're at the depths of despair, but sometimes just getting through our day. We have these little deadlines and we are afraid of not reaching them or meeting them or accomplishing them. Do we not? 
And sometimes I think God has a way of sticking sticks in our spokes to slow us down in our days to help us remind, remind us who should be in control of our days and who we should be looking to to number our days and order our days. And so he tells her, fear not. I will make of him a great nation. And that's the reminders we need. That we have a God who's for us. We have a God who can care for us. We have a God who knows just what we need to get done today, today, this week, or this month, or this year. He knows just how to care for us in the most desperate of situations because he will never leave us nor forsake us. And the Bible's filled with those kind of promises to help us prevent this kind of anxiety, this kind of despair. See, God underscores his command to fear not with a promise, just as he does with us. And thus, therefore, we ought to turn to the promises of God. And he tells her after, in verse 18, not only makes him a promise, but tells her to get moving. Arise, get up, get your eyes off yourself, basically. Let's get, let's get moving. I have a plan for you and for your son. Because fear is often debilitating, isn't it? Freezes us in our tracks. We become so self-absorbed. When she did that, her eyes were open, verse 19, and she saw a well of water. And I don't know if the well of water was right there and she didn't see it, or if God, in his divine power, dug a well while she was crying. Whatever the case may be, we serve a supernatural God. Either could be the case. But her eyes were open to it. I was reminded when I read this years ago when we deer hunted, I had an uncle who got lost in the woods during deer season and it was getting well past dark while the rest of us waited. And finally he decided he would shoot three shots. You know, the old signal, come find me, help me. I can't find my way out of the woods. And, and he was about 30 feet from the truck and we yelled, well, come out of the woods then after the three shots went off. That must have been quite embarrassing. It was right there. Well, it was dark. He couldn't see. Well, whatever the case, it was God who opened Hagar's eyes. There's a well right there. There's a solution right in front of you. Yeah, the flask is empty, but the water's right there. And God provided for her, did he not? And when we listen to the Lord, our eyes are open to his provisions of grace, and we begin to gain a new perspective in life. And this Hagar is just a, a wandering in the wilderness is such a tremendous picture of mankind wandering in the wilderness of this world. And the Bible describes us that way as being having this, not just being lost to God and on our way to hell, but even in life. The Bible describes mankind as having gone astray, having turned to our own way, the blind leading the blind, that we cannot please God. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. The ungodly are like the chaff blown away. We're building our lives on shifting sand. We're children of wrath, enemies of God, without hope and without God in this world. And on and on it goes. Apart from God, that's what life is like. And a casual glance around the, around the world today emphasizes the truths of these descriptions. Even the richest guy in the world said, vanity of vanities, there's nothing out there satisfies. And it seems like mankind looks everywhere but to their creator to find wisdom, fulfillment, 
his guidance in life. Today, we could describe our world as the depravity of depravities. And Hagar running out of water indicates a person coming to the end of themselves, doesn't it? Running out of our own resources to cope and navigate life until we sit in a heap, wailing and crying for help, not knowing which way to turn. And we ask questions like, I don't know where to turn, I don't know what to do, how am I going to get out of this mess? And there's a tremendous amount of ongoing and dis- dis- destruction and distraction in being self-absorbed with our problems, isn't there? It gets from bad to worse to worse. Even in everyday living, we sometimes think that our problems are so big that there's no solution. And sometimes we think we're just kind of unique and special that no one else understands us in life. We're just the only ones that have big problems. Or sometimes we're the only people, we're the only ones that are so busy and so overwhelmed in life. We, we're just such special people. We're the only ones that are this overwhelmed in life because I'm so special. And yet life always gets that way when we get our eyes off the Lord, doesn't it? That's the problem. Life gets that way. We don't allow the Lord to order our days. Sometimes I've had people tell me when, when, when we talk about an offer to help or doing something, and they say, well, you're so busy. And I have to answer and step back and think, I'm only as busy as I want to be. Now, sometimes busyness is thrust upon us in certain situations in life. There was a time this past year when Laura and I cared for her, helped care for her, her dad in his waning months, and it, it took up a bit of time. That, that happens. There's times when things are thrust upon us that seem overwhelming. But we must remember that our God is very present help. He's right there. He's that well of water right there. He's the one that can bring the refreshment to endure whatever he allows into our day. And oftentimes the problem isn't with our schedule, it's, it's with ourselves and, uh, and, uh, and our plans for our life rather than God's plans for our life. Rather than resting in his direction, we often run around like chickens with our head cut off trying to accomplish what we think we need to get done. And it prevents us oftentimes from being used by God. Because if we're not refreshed by the water of life, we're going to be parched in the living of life and often become unusable. Hagar was in a state of absolute uselessness at this point in life because she was not drinking of that well of salvation, the well of life that Jesus provides for his own. Ishmael's prayer here, if that's what he was doing, his cry, his prayer illustrates the cry of the heart of man for desperate help. Let's go to Psalm 34, if you would please, just our scripture reading, just a couple of reminders here in this wonderful psalm, that we have a God who hears. And that's when we get to that point, we have to remember and remind ourselves that why are we living a parched life? Why are we living such a hopeless experience when we have a God who is a powerful and loving and sovereign God over our lives and he cares for his own? Verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him, despite the circumstances of life. 
Verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want or lack to those who fear him. Verse 10 says, Those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Verse 15, jumping down, says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. He delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of, their, out of them all. What a wonderful God we have. And that's what happens when we get in that situation when we think we're so busy, so overwhelmed, we have so much, such big problems that God says, just open your eyes, open the word. That's what we do. Go to the promises of God and see that there is living water to be lived. Because as Christians, we have that very promised seed, the person of Jesus Christ living within to, to direct us. We have the spirit of God to empower us and to order our days. And we have no reason to fear. And that's why God's answer often throughout scripture we, scripture, we see this admonition from God to those who are in a, in a panic, in despair. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Isaiah 41. There's several verses in the New Testament that speak about living water. Jesus answered to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and he, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And we know this is a reference to salvation, to life in Christ. But it's, 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 a, it's, it's not only eternal salvation, but it is abundant salvation. Later, he, Jesus said to her in verse 13 and 14, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. John 7, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That just, these verses just depict abundance, doesn't it? Rather than despair, rather than being overwhelmed, when we rest in the care of sovereign care of our God, in his promise of deliverance, a God who hears our cries and our prayers, he cares for us, and he hurts with us. I don't think it was easy for him just to, just to send Ishmael and Hagar away. It was a decision that Abraham and Sarai had made in the flesh that God would deal with in their lives, but it became necessary, and in his love and his grace, he heard their cry. And he provided for them refreshment and deliverance from their troubles. Revelation 21 says, And he said to me, It is done. I am al the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. The next chapter, in verse 17, And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. God offers his grace, his help freely. And we just have to recognize our thirst. When we are hopeless, when we are overwhelmed, when we are in despair, when we realize that we just can't keep it all together, which is a good lesson to learn, isn't it? And we can open our eyes and see the water of life that's right there.
Jesus himself. And rest in him. It doesn't mean all our problems will instantly change, but God will give us perspective and direction and deliverance in them. And we'll be refreshed because we realize whatever life brings, it's in the will of God for our good and his glory. And so the promise made to Abraham providing a seed. The right seed which would be fulfilled through the person of Isaac is the seed who came in Jesus Christ and he is the one who provides the water of life. Are we drinking at that well? Are we finding our refreshment in him? Do we remember when, when life seemed to turn upside down to open our eyes to the word of God and allow, allow God to open our eyes to his loving, sovereign care for us? Rather than frustration, rather than emptiness, rather than despair and worry, God intends abundance, doesn't he? And that's the living water that can flow when we're willing to entrust our lives to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson that we find in Hagar, Father, and Ishmael. Thank you that you are a God who hears. You hear our prayers. You deliver your own. You're like a loving Heavenly Father that just waits for us to look up. Anxious, anxious for us to look to you is that you might open our eyes to the abundance you, ha you, you have provided for us in Christ. And Father, in that abundance, you help us navigate this broken world, this challenging world, but we can rest in a, fa in a Father's care. And so Father, make these things helpful to us this morning now we pray for your glory in Jesus' name.